Commencing countdown. Three, two, one. This is the Contracting Experience. Connecting government contracting professionals to the world around them through conversations with acquisition influencers, insights into evolving hot topics, and sharing lessons learned from the field. This next episode of the podcast is with Head of Air Force Contracting, Major General Cameron Holt. General Holt talks about the extraordinary response of Air Force Contracting during the COVID-19 pandemic. He also addresses what work is being done on lines of effort within the Air Force Contracting Flight Plan and how those efforts are setting up the contracting unit of the future. He also has some big ideas that, if implemented, would revolutionize the way the Air Force conducts business. I hope you enjoy. I want to welcome General Holt back to the podcast again. Thank you. Glad to be back. So, sir, a lot has changed in the world since you were last on the podcast in September 2019, namely the COVID-19 pandemic. What has Air Force contracting done to support the pandemic response? Yeah, to say that uh, a little bit has changed since the pandemic started is the understatement of the year. But uh, yeah, I'm really happy to talk about this. Uh, last March, when this all began, um, Dr. Roper, uh, even in a staff meeting, I mean, I, he, I didn't even talk to him ahead of the staff meeting, uh, told everybody in the staff meeting that General Holt was going to stand up a task force, <laughs> an acquisition task force, uh, to respond to the pandemic and to lend our Air Force contractor, Air Force acquisition, uh, capacity and capabilities to the overall national response effort. Mm -hmm. And uh, we got busy. And in f literally 48 hours, uh, it was a kind of funny story. I, that was the first day I was staying home from work um, from the pandemic. And I, uh, I, I found out about that. And the VPNs were down, uh, they were overloaded. Mm -hmm. I literally had a government iPhone 6, that's all I had. And so in 48 hours out of, a, out of an iPhone 6 in my living room, uh, we, we stood up uh, an, an acquisition task force around uh, four lines of effort. Mm -hmm. And we stood up this task force in a very unique way. Uh, as you know, in contracting, we deploy a lot and we do battlefield contracting. And I can tell you the way that we uh, set up this task force is exactly how I would go about setting up a task force on a battlefield the same sense of urgency, very small task force staff, but big, big execution pipes with very, very strong leadership uh, across the board. And so uh, we stood up four lines of effort. The first line of effort was called relief. And that was all the big pipes of acquisition um, across the uh, acquisition community. Dr. Roper sent out a note asking all PEOs to identify volunteers and of course the MAGCOMs did as well, and so that's how we got started with that. So we, um, Relief uh, was postured to support FEMA uh, initially, and then also the uh, Department of Homeland, uh, or Health and Human Services, DHHS, uh, throughout the, the, the fight. Line of effort two was called Resilience. And this uh, line of effort was to leverage our role that we had prior to this as the executive agent uh, for all of DOD for DPA Title III spending. So DPA is Defense Production Act, mm -hmm. 
And we had done this before, uh, working on uh, defense industrial base projects that expand capacity, manufacturing capacity. But in this line of effort, we were going to leverage that capability, but use it to shore up uh, key capabilities that were threatened by uh, COVID-19. And so that was line of effort two. Line of effort three was called recovery. And recovery was really introspective, looking at all of our Air Force programs and what the likely impacts were going to be to those programs. Mm -hmm. And it also had an Air Force contracting policy team connected to them as well, because we had to get a lot of policy memos out in very rapid succession to support a whole different posture and all the contingency contracting authorities that we would have in a wartime environment. And then we stood up a data analytics cell to help out too, so that um, as we fired off contracting policy on how to award contracts and code them, we could then use the data analytics team to see ourselves as we went along. So that was a pretty critical effort. We were tied to all the PEOs and getting their assessments of uh, what they saw as the impacts to their programs as well. And then line of effort four was called RAPID. And this is where the AFWORKS team was attached to my task force. And we used a lot of their uh, very innovative contracting methods and tools and portals. Um, and we stood up a, uh, a CSO or commercial solutions opening mm -hmm. where we literally uh, transferred all of what we had shaped in the startup industry, young startup industry in America for Fly Fight Win. And we used the exact same tool set, but now on the medical community. And really fascinating work because uh, before the pandemic began, we didn't have a very strong role in, in medical acquisition in the right. DOD. That was typically the Army and DLA had the primary role for that. But while DLA was doing all the big commodity buys, we then ended up supporting DHHS by increasing the industrial base capacity for medical across the United States and reshoring a lot of personal protective equipment, mm -hmm. um, ventilators, pharmaceuticals, testing and diagnostics, really across the board, uh, we became the primary agent for increasing the, the uh, capacity expansion. So we spent, um, we put about $1.2 billion in obligations and about $6 billion in overall contract value from March through the end of the fiscal year. Um, and of course, a lot of that was started with undefinitized contract actions. Um, but they were also definitized, all of them. And so uh, Air Force contracting stood up big time. In fact, I uh, asked my leadership to please let me put a, a senior contracting uh, leader in charge of uh, line of effort one for relief, where, where DHHS was really going to need somebody in charge of that that really knew how to get things done and what all our new tools were about in mission-focused business leadership. And so initially Tom Robinson, LCMCPK, our only tier two mm -hmm. in uh, contracting. Uh, Dr. Roper was fully on board, he, he led that. Uh, and then right after him, Tony Braswell stepped up um, as, as he replaced Tom Robinson in his uh, peacetime role as well. So we've been on a wartime footing since then, mm -hmm. and we have become indispensable uh, to the entire federal government, not just to DOD in this response. And uh, the numbers are absolutely staggering in what we've been able to reshore and expand on U.S. soil in response. And we're very proud of the fact that nobody has gone without a ventilator in the United States. 
Nobody has gone without the right nasal swabs. Uh, and the testing and uh, capacity has expanded to such a rapid degree. And all the N95 mask expansion, um, all of that was uh, due to the efforts of uh, not, not just Air Force contracting, Air Force acquisition in general, but, uh, but contracting played a big, big role in all of that. Well, I mean, I want to take a minute just to acknowledge that. I mean, it's amazing feat that our teams executed and are ex still executing. And so with that, um, obviously, it took a lot of time and effort and energy to focus on the, um, the COVID-19 task force by your staff and Air Force contracting more broadly. Um, has that impacted the rollout of initiatives within Air Force contracting flight plan, lines of effort, and tasks within those efforts? Yeah, absolutely. There's no way around that. Um, in fact, the AQC staff, um, all of them are doing two jobs. Uh, in, in the core team on the, on the task force, um, but also their, their regular AQC role. I myself am doing that. Many folks across Air Force contracting are doing that. We've got literally hundreds of people working uh, on this task force. Now, that said, Amber, I was really surprised to see how much progress we still did make mm -hmm. in mission-focused business leadership in the calendar year 20 key results that we had set up. Because remember, we have a board of directors annually that sets up the next calendar year worth of key results. I would tell you that line of effort one in our flight plan still made a tremendous amount of progress in, in, uh, in uh, moving uh, us forward in the uh, knowledge, skills, and abilities, mm -hmm. and really influencing the broader community for contracting training in the future. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you're watching, but DAU just uh, rolled out some of the new contracting training and the certification process, and they, they and the other services and agencies actually based all of that on the six KSAs of a mission-focused business leader. All that work that we had done during calendar year 19, during calendar year 20, the LOE1 team was working with DAU and the rest of the services to set that up for the whole DOD um, way forward. And now even in the federal space, NCMA has now joined uh, in that same vein and are starting to move out in industry training, um, all influenced by our LOE1 team during calendar year 20 while we're running the task force. Really incredible stuff. Yeah. And tools, not rules. I'm proud to tell you, you know, Con IT, once upon a time, as you recall, looked like it would be an Iowa caucuses moment. <laughs> and I was fearful that first end of fiscal year, that's where we were headed. Right. But even during the pandemic, the team that was bringing Con IT to life and resolving all the issues and gaining altitude uh, uh, more and more, they kept hard at work. And frankly, now Con IT um, certainly still has its issues. And uh, the biggest issue being, I can't get the Air Force to fully fund me. But we're ready to accelerate now. And I'm proud to tell you that because of their work, even during the pandemic, we have just had, uh, just as a couple of weeks ago, our very first site that transitioned from Conrite to Con IT. The entire operational Air Force is already transitioned. So SPS is a thing of the past, thank God. <laughs> Rest in peace. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's gone. Now we've started to replace Conrite, and that never would have been possible if the Tools Not Rules team had not stayed somewhat on track. Right. LOE4 and our role in the joint operations space 
um, it did not stop at all, uh, from what I can tell, at both layers, both at AFICC and at, at my staff's level. And in fact, how operational contract support is led out of the Pentagon was also influenced by our LOE4 team. Mm -hmm. So the Joint Staff and OSD have now revamped their entire, uh, what they call Functional Capabilities Integration Board for Operational Contract Support, Wartime Contracting. Mm -hmm. They've revamped it around our LOE4. So everything that we said that FTIB was not functioning well at and just doing administrative work, and the biggest issue they worried about was when the next reg update was coming up. Mm -hmm. And now they've completely flipped that around to where we're listening to combatant commanders and their OCS plans. And the Pentagon is now in the position of fixing those barriers that uh, the combatant commands have. And the Air Force is playing a leading role in all of that, and largely in part due to the progress that was made during calendar 20. Okay. LOE 3 was the LOE that I think was most impacted. Because LOE 3, which is owning the high ground, optimizing the acquisition enterprise, there is a lot of big ideas in LOE 3 mm -hmm. that relies not only on contracting, but other functions of the Air Force to come alongside our key results teams mm -hmm. and work in concert with us. And that almost was non-existent during the pandemic uh, response. So now we're getting back on board with that. In calendar year 21, we now have uh, 84 key result teams operating simultaneously, and we're not done with the DAF Act response uh, either. So, um, if the if the question is, can we can we do both at the same time? The answer is yes. I am mindful of of the fact that people are tired, but I also understand, and I think our people do too. This response effort is so critical, and mission-focused business leadership with the threat we face that's imminent with China is so critical. I think our people are really exhilarated as well as being tired. Um, and I know it's not, uh, it, it's not the reason why we do things, but I have to tell you, this response has been kind of like uh, what I call an early graduation exercise for mission-focused business leadership. Mm -hmm. Air Force contracting, I am not kidding you, is the toast of the town in DC. Uh, DHHS in, on, a, on, a, on a call last week, just last week said in front of the entire interagency, you know, Air Force Contracting is trying to train us on how to use their innovation and their tools and their speed. And they said, I, I'm not even sure that we can replicate it. Uh, and they were worried that they, they can't even replicate it, even with being trained, because it's a cultural issue. We see problems and barriers and we find solutions to them and we just keep moving. And where there's not a solution, we invent one. And uh, that's not easily reproduced. And uh, we have a couple of Packard Awards now, uh, which is the highest acquisition award in DOD, uh, one for the flexibility in contracting for our whole contracting community, another one for our LOE2 team the, um, in, the, in the pandemic response, the resilience team that worked DPA Title III on behalf of the nation and shored up a lot of critical defense capabilities at just the right time. And then we've got a federal award on, on uh, data disruption and our ability to work policy on one end and then on the other end be able to see ourselves in the data and come up with all new virtual tools to be able to support the team. And we even stood up a, uh, an ability to vet vendors real time. So even while we were doing that kind of speed, 
We were identifying fraudulent contractors that popped up and we avoid doing business with them to begin with. We had the Air Force Audit Agency right there on our task force uh, working with us the whole time as well. So it's been just an incredible journey, but Air Force contracting has really come out as one of the heroes uh, in this story, federal government wide, and that is being widely recognized across the federal government. It's not why we do it, and I've said this before, we don't necessarily want the credit, but we certainly are getting the credit. And that's good, it, it, and it only reinforces the journey we're on for air and space power as well. For sure, and people should be proud of the work that they're doing, and I know that means a lot to people right now. Absolutely right, and, and we've taken it um, very seriously to make sure the recognition gets out, and so I've signed out literally hundreds of military and civilian awards, both the Air Force Service Medal, and I think I don't know this for sure, but I think from a single organization, we've awarded more uh, civilian medals than, than I think any organization ever has in the past, any single organization. Uh, we actually ran the Air Force out of the little certificates <laughs> that are pr printed. And uh, uh, in fact, earlier today, I was able to hand off a bunch of really thick folders to several organizations here at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Uh, filled with signed certificates and metal packages for both military and civilians. But uh, it, it, I've just been so humbled to be able to lead both Air Force contracting and this uh, broader acquisition response. Um, and then just watching our contracting folks fly has just been really a treasure for me. Well, and as you mentioned, it's, it's kind of letting, letting them fly in that mission-focused business leadership you know, culture that you set out to build, and this was a way to do that. I think none of us saw coming, but absolutely, they were able to live it and are living it real life. I can truthfully tell you, I've, you know, I've been uh, in several different battlefield uh, situations in war zones doing contingency contracting. What we did, what we just have done in Air Force contracting writ large, civilians, military, the whole diversity of our team mm -hmm. is every bit as fast as what we would do on a battlefield. Mm -hmm. And we did that as a pickup game right? with no prior plan to go do it. And that is um, very humbling. And it, and it just confirms what I've told the chief, the vice chief, our leadership in AQ. You don't have another more innovative group of people than in Air Force contracting. And if you just let them free and let them go, uh, they will hold to the core values they will not do the wrong thing, but they will push the envelope mm -hmm. uh, of everything that doesn't matter. <laughs> right, right. And, um, and get results. I, I can tell you, very, very few of, uh, of the multi-million dollar efforts that we took on, some hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, very few of them took longer than 45 days from tooth to tail. Wow. Really unbelievable. Yeah. So you are going after some big ideas via Air Force Contracting Flight Plan. Can you talk about an idea or two that, if implemented, would revolutionize how the Air Force conducts business? Sure, yeah, there's, uh, as I said, there's 84 uh, key result teams working simultaneously right now um, across our flight plan for lines of effort and, and the objectives that underlie those. I'll highlight a couple that I think if we can get traction with other functions and capture the imagination of leadership, and, and potentially Congress as well, which I've already started the process on. Mm -hmm. It will absolutely change the game, and it will flip the script 
to advantage United States in the fight with China. As I sit here right now, I, I'm, I, I have to tell you we are falling behind. And we're, we're far further behind than we were before the pandemic started. Um, over this last year, the United States has lost 2.3% in GDP, while China has gained 2.3% in GDP. Uh, for most of the Western world that's accountable to their population, this has been a huge hit. And the unemployment that has been created has been led by urban unemployment uh, because of the safety measures that have been employed. But so many small businesses have gone out of business and the economic engine of the United States literally stopped. And in places that the governments are not accountable to their people, they still were impacted, but not nearly as severely. Mm -hmm. And so now we have a situation where China was uh, estimated to overtake the United States in uh, the, being the largest economic power in the world by 2033. Now I just saw that estimate has now changed to 2028 as a result of uh, the numbers I just gave you. The U.S. has a, about a $317 billion trade deficit with uh, China. That doesn't look like it's going down. It looks like it's going up. And uh, China is starting to make noises like uh, they would like to, uh, with even the support of the World Bank, replace the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency in the world. And they're talking about even the, the renminbi or even a basket currency of some kind replacing it. If the yuan continues to strengthen against the dollar um, to uh, what is predicted, about six yuan to the dollar, uh, that estimate of the China overtaking the U.S. as the supreme economic power in the world will drop even further to 2026. And I expect that we'll see that later this year. That's, that means in five years, we will, be, we will no longer be the biggest economic engine in the world. And a lot of our businesses that don't do business with the DOD, they are forced to think about that very deeply. And in some cases, do business in China or with China as opposed to doing business with the, with the DOD. And frankly, China can make investment decisions much faster than we can. We are still dealing with, uh, believe it or not, we are still dealing with the planning, uh, programming, budgeting, execution system that Robert McNamara came up with when he was Secretary of Defense during the Vietnam War. And that is the system that we still use for oversight of spending for defense and our national security. It is so gargantuanly slow, and we are so much slower at making investment decisions real time according to threats, that we've got to do something about that. So I'm going to talk to you about two initiatives that I'll pick out that I think are serious game changers if we can get um, uh, support for them. Uh, one I've talked to you about before, I think, is called free cash flow. Uh, every, every business in America operates with a free cash flow account. Every publicly held corporation does. And they incentivize their managers to operate and generate operating margin from operations, but do so in a way uh, that uh, frees up cash for the corporation writ large to reinvest. And so that's free cash flow accounts. And managers get rewarded for that. Mm -hmm. So they're incentivized to try to operate that way. And as that free cash flow comes up to the CFO or CEO level, they write what's called cash flow guidance. And the, those companies then deploy that cash 
in a way that they think is most beneficial to that company. So mostly it's dividends and it's shares buybacks right off the top. Somewhere in the distance, they actually do capital, capital expenditures, CapEx, that support our programs. But <laughs> to start off with, it's about shareholder value. So they are able to do that, and that's exactly how they operate all the time. What if we borrowed that concept and we said, in this struggle with great power competition, knowing that we're far slower at seizing opportunities and adjusting for threats, and that our companies, our defense companies' financials are not aligned with program execution, not at all. Mm -hmm. If we've thought differently about that and we said, hey, instead of the future year's defense plan of six years of our budget, instead of us accepting that after six years we're going to be worse off against China than we are today, uh, even with that known defense budget, and being so predictable in what we can buy in that six years, how many B-21s, how many F-35s, what if we were freed up with a free cash flow account to rapidly reinvest anything we could save and we incentivize our folks to save money uh, even as we buy 100% of the mission? Mm -hmm. Our folks are already doing that. You know this. In category management, in AFICC, throughout the operational and enterprise contracting world, we've saved well over $2 billion since 2015. Mm -hmm. You know how much money we've reinvested of that? Not one nickel. Not one nickel. And so what if we had a situation where that money could be identified as free cash flow? And instead of a CEO identifying the cash flow guidance, what if Congress did that for us? What if we did a pilot program where the four committees, defense committees of Congress, instead of approving a single above threshold reprogramming action, they approved cash flow guidance for the entire year? of how we can identify and reinvest money. And as a PEO saves money, instead of having to just reinvest it in the same weapon system that it was appropriated in, which may be suboptimal, what if they identified it as free cash flow and immediately 50% of that money's returned to them in any color of money they needed in? Civ pay, uh, range instrumentation, modernization money, any color of money you needed in. And that's their incentive. And then 50% of that money goes back to A8 and FM for them to reinvest in lethality and readiness of our force. Mm -hmm. Maybe buy more B-21s, maybe buy more F-35s, uh, maybe buy, accelerate ABMS, maybe fix a lot of holes in a lot of programs that are slowing us down. And then the same thing with wing commanders. What if wing commanders were incentivized similarly and at the end of fiscal year, instead of just buying a bunch of stuff at the end of fiscal year to execute all the money, what if they identified it as free cash flow? And what if Congress gave us the ability to put it on something like a MORD so that we could reinvest it over the next six months and it doesn't turn into a pumpkin on September 30th and invest it wisely? And 50% of that money goes right back to that wing commander to spend on anything they want, legally. So. Think about the, uh, about the dramatic change that we would, we would get if we were able to do that, right? The big thing we got to make sure of is that Congress doesn't lose its oversight role because that's part of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. So I would never say that we wouldn't be subject to oversight, but what I would tell Congress is you have to modernize the way that you do oversight. Right. And we can't just do big omnibus reprogramming actions or 
sit on an above threshold reprogramming action for 90 days as some sort of political maneuvering when it comes to national defense and our ability to make decisions faster than China. That is, the, that is um, one of the single biggest things that I think would be a game changer. And I would be willing for the Air Force to take that on as a pilot to see how that goes, say for one fight up, and then measure how much more were we able to buy doing things that way than what we thought we could buy in that one fight up. How did we change the, that equation with China uh, so that they can no longer plan on how many B-21s we'd have because frankly, we don't know ourselves. Right. So that's one. The other one I would tell you is uh, flipping the business model. The business model today uh, misaligns incentives of industry with uh, actually against the national defense strategy. I know that's a bold statement to make, so I'll explain what I mean. So the way it goes now, if, if we're once in a generation, every 30 years, 50 years, we're going to do a new source selection for a new capability, a new bomber, a new fighter or something. And in that source selection, uh, our defense industry has learned uh, how to do this. And they, they'll go to their board of directors, they'll go to their shareholders, and they'll say, when we propose, we're going to lose money intentionally. And we'll put up 300 million or 400 million or whatever it is that they put up. And we, stupidly, unfortunately, think we're saving money with competition. Mm -hmm. We're not. They're not doing this for altruism. Mm -hmm. And what they have to be able to successfully sell to their shareholders is the idea that if I invest that $300 million loss today and win the development and production contracts, I will hold on to the IP, even if they think that they're buying intellectual property, I'll hold on to it. Mm -hmm. And we will make four, five, six, ten times this back later. Mm -hmm. Because remember, money later is worth less than money today. Mm -hmm. So they have to sell such a high multiple to their shareholders. And quite frankly, if you've looked at the financials of our big defense firms, they're making that work. And they are doing very, very well. In America, when you do risk-adjusted return, defense firms are some of the most profitable firms out there, mm -hmm. um, bar none. Now, I'm not opposed to that. I want a strong U.S. defense industry. I want to attract more players into it. So I'm not against that. But what it results in is something very damaging to our national security. And, and here's how that goes. If you're the Air Force and you decide, if I want to accelerate the pace of change and technological advancement in military weaponry vis-a-vis -vis China, and maybe start to develop the new fighter before the current one's fielded, or the new bomber before the current one is in development is even fielded, and start to do multiple programs right behind each other mm -hmm. uh, with overlapping capability, that would be an expensive venture. Where would that money come from? We would have to go to the Hill and ask them, please, let us divest all of these things we no longer need, particularly those things that are not useful to us in a fight with China or Russia mm -hmm. that we see as the pacing threat. Uh, right now, a company who in many cases contribute to campaigns and, and that's part of our system, so I'm not opposed to that either, but when they go to Congress they, to lobby, their message is, don't you dare let the Air Force divest the B-52. Don't you dare let them get rid of the B-1 or the J-STARS 
or any number of old weapon systems, make them rewing the A-10, even though in a fight with China, the A-10 is, is not incredibly useful. Mm -hmm. And how much money have we spent to do service life extension programs and to re-engine and to um, update avionics and on and on and on? That money needs to be reinvested in accelerating the pace of change uh, and, and becoming a much stronger deterrent in space and in air with China. But our company's interest is to go make back that five to 10 times what they lost in development and production. Mm -hmm. So we have a key results team that are actually looking at that really hard on, there is no way industry is going to support doing this voluntarily mm -hmm. because they're making too much money with the current model, frankly, mm -hmm. it, it works for them. Uh, but if we're really going to get after our national defense strategy vis-a-vis uh, -vis China, we cannot hold on to weapon systems for 30 or 50 years. I've even asked Congress or staffers to consider we need laws that say the, the military cannot keep a weapon system beyond a certain point unless we justify why we need to keep it, mm -hmm. that it continues to be relevant. Um, so that it's, it, the, the default setting is that we will divest it and reinvest it in new technology. Um, that's not the way it is today. But in contracting, you know, I notice we have a couple of advantages. We own Section M. We own the requirements. So are we willing to use that? What if we were able to use our, our smart IP cadre team, which is working on this hard right now uh, in AQC, what if we gave people Section M language that said, that if you attempt to buy in, in development and production, we will throw you out of the competition. Not that we won't just select you, you will be non-responsive to our solicitation and we will throw you out. And not only that, but with the incentives that we've rolled out in that development and production program, if you can't prove to us successfully in your proposal how you can make a minimum profit in development and production, not a maximum, a minimum profit, Given that incentive structure, you won't win. You won't be competitive. And in the same contract, we devalue intentionally the intellectual property immediately after production to the point where it's completely fungible using open systems architecture and government purpose rights and even unlimited rights, where companies are making a new deal which says we're going to be profitable in development and production Remember I said money now is worth more than money later. Mm -hmm. So if they went to the CFO and to the board and they said, you know, the Air Force is really mean. They don't want us to make money 10 years from now. They want us to make money now. They want us to be profitable right now and attract all the best engineers into the state-of-the-art cutting-edge technologies in development and production of weapon systems. But you know what? We really don't want to do that. We, 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 we want to work on the B-52, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think it would be a tough sell on the business side uh, to not support some of that change. You might see in the future, uh, you know that we are uh, all in a digital uh, acquisition in the Air Force, and we will continue to be. In our key results teams, we have our folks thinking through that, flipping the business model so that we have digital contracting that underlies and powers that digital uh, acquisition. And, and this is part of it, is flipping that business model. There are implications for more robustly funding development and production in the budget. If we can do that, 
I, I think we can uh, flip, flip the business model even coercively if we need to. Sir, based on recent history on 10-year past AQCs, we may not have you as head of Air Force contracting much longer. How will mission-focused business leadership continue beyond your tenure? Well, I hope you don't know something I don't. <laughs> I'm happy to be in this job. I, I, um, I have no interest in, in doing anything at higher levels. This is my dream job. This is what I've always wanted to do, although I didn't know that it was even possible. I thought I was going to be in for four years and get out. Um, that was 30 years ago. And so I love our people, I love what we do, and I feel like it's been my job to reintroduce the Air Force to contracting and, and contracting to the Air Force. Mm -hmm. Because it is necessary now, given the threat we face in economics and information power, for our business leaders to step up and understand the end result of the mission and the threat, and then change the game. As far as the sustainability goes, look, no one person is indispensable. Not me, not anybody. And so the flight plan in writing it down gives us an opportunity to work all parts of this problem at once. And I often joke around that I'm Cortez and I'm burning the ships behind me. And in, and in reality, I am because we are changing everything we're not just changing something, we're changing everything. We're changing in LOE1, we're changing even what people get paid. We've upgraded 1,200 positions out of 5,500 civilian positions have been upgraded. And I don't think we're done with that. Um, we were paying the least in the whole federal government and we had the best uh, force out there, the most educated force out there. We're correcting that. The training, the new training we're adding for business leadership, for advanced business leadership, and then our SCO capstone course to come. This year, initial skills training is being changed. Uh, Merco and, and uh, Jumpstart are merging. Mm -hmm. And we'll be training this all the way up. In line of effort two, we've taken away all the mandatory procedures and all the bureaucracy that, and all the barriers. And we're replacing it with tactics and techniques and procedures and becoming a learning organization um, and operating in horizontal teams with uni unity of effort. Look what we've been able to accomplish just in the DAF Act and the Air Force alone, satisfying both of those with an undermanned contracting force. Amazing innovations going on. New tools being pushed. AFMC just adopted ConIT as part of the Digital uh, Acquisition Air Force. And so it becomes a much higher priority for funding, which is uh, very welcome. So we need to accelerate the pace of change on that. Line of effort three is gonna change how we even measure ourselves and how we even see progress against the missions of the Air Force in ways that um, if we ever looked at going back, it would, it, people would be uh, wondering why in the world would you ever want to do that? Mm -hmm. And of course, line of effort four, we've, we, we are the leaders now in contingency contracting, we will be in the future. When you do this much change, the biggest deal is culture but ironically, that's been the easiest to change amongst our people. All we really had to do was explain to them why it's so important for them to use their knowledge in this way, not for compliance as its own objective, but for the mission, and to change the game with China. And the response has been outstanding. Uh, I can't imagine in the future if somebody came up on voice and said, you know, I've got an idea, let's, let's pay people less. Um, or let's go write a bunch of regulations that make it really hard for folks to do their job. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine that um, being too easy to do, even if somebody had the will to do it. And I don't think it's the right direction for us anyway. 
Is everything bulletproof? No, not, not at all. If the administration or the next Secretary of the Air Force decides, nope, I want contracting to be a purely uh, compliance focus, you know, we know how this works. We support the Constitution, civilian control of the military will salute smartly and do it. So it's not bulletproof, but I do think it has captured the imagination of a lot of folks in Air Force contracting and in operations in the Air Force. And I think the results are really speaking for themselves. Mm -hmm. So um, I hope it will be uh, uh, even better when I leave um, and faster when I leave, not, not the other way around. So sir, you're, you're definitely a leader with a vision. What does the Air Force Contracting Unit and Mission Focused Business Leader of 2030 look like? Yeah, so I mean, we, we've talked about it really the whole time, but if you can imagine being a part of an elite business force that is valued by all, by the mission, uh, and seen as such experts that um, if you have a problem, you go to them first to find a way around that problem. And that's what we're building. Um, we're building a group of decision makers with tools, with authority, with data at the lowest levels, and we've set them free. I can give authority faster to one of our business folks, one of our contracting folks, than any corporation in America. If the best business folks come to the Air Force and can hack it and stay with us, imagine what, a what a, an elite business force we will be. Looking at how we measure ourselves uh, in the future, where the transaction itself of contracting, although we understand it inside and out as contracting ninjas, it becomes so quick and low cost for us to do. And the real uh, heavy lifting that we spend our time on, that we don't automate, is really thinking through the data and collaborating with each other on what the right moves are in business. So if you imagine that kind of a world, it is within our grasp. And I, I really want a situation where the folks that replace me 10 years from now are so much more capable than I am. And I, I, I really kind of look at us on a course towards developing such uh, an elite business force that people want to be a part of it and want to stay in it once they're there and they're getting a lot of the, uh, a lot of the swagger, <laughs> so to speak, from being able to hang with that kind of a team. Well, sir, I want to thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Amber. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, I know everybody's looking forward to hearing from you some more. They've seen your fireside chat, so yep. hearing it from, from your mouth, I think they'll definitely appreciate it. And people can't see it, but you've given me some little toy uh, contracting ninjas here. And yeah, talk about permeating, awesome. the culture is permeating through. So my supervisor, actually, Addie Reeder, she told me to give those to you. She's given them out to all her employees, and she gave them to us. And so Yeah, I've, I've seen it start to show up on patches <laughs> and, and all kinds of places. So it's really great to be a part of. If you have suggestions for topics or people to interview or feedback on the podcast, you can submit those at thecontractingexperience at gmail.com. I want to thank you all for listening to the Contracting Experience Podcast. Until next time, keep connecting to the world around you.